This is Bill Brackney, uh, the director of the Acadia Center for Baptist and Anabaptist Studies. And uh, we have a special guest, the 2013 George Rollick lecturer, Nick Bunker of Lincoln, England, who has uh, published a significant work in uh, the field of 17th century studies. And uh, Nick, we welcome you to um, Canada and to Acadia. Well, thank you very much, Bill. It's, it's lovely to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your work, and overall how uh, you began to move into this kind of a project. Well, by background, uh, my career was first of all in journalism. I was a newspaper journalist in the United Kingdom, uh, primarily for the Financial Times of London. And then, in fact, I was uh, for many years a stockbroker and investment banker. So uh, my background isn't, isn't the conventional background for somebody who, who writes about the 17th century. Um, and in particular about religious issues in the 17th century. But I came to it really because um, my wife and I had, uh, had left London. Uh, we were living uh, in uh, Lincolnshire, and I became particularly interested in the uh, local origins, the local background in Lincolnshire and Nottinghamshire in the English Midlands of some of the earliest settlers uh, in New England, the people we refer to as the, the pilgrims, the, uh, the founders of the Plymouth colony. And my view was that it ought to be possible uh, on the basis of using archival material um, and taking a very broad view to say something new about the, uh, the origins of, of, of their particular brand of, of Christianity and also of their motives for uh, going to the new world. Um, and that's how my book Making Haste from Babylon originated. I wasn't really intending initially to uh, dwell too much upon the upon the origins of separatism, the religious creed associated with the, the Mayfair programs, but I found myself impelled to do so uh, as I came to take the view that it was uh, um, so important and so central to the story that it had to be dealt with. Okay, thank you. I stumbled on the book, as have several others, because of my interest in uh, the period and in uh, the separates and the uh, Pilgrim Fathers. And lo and behold, there were two figures standing right out in John Smythe and Thomas Helwys. Um, I consider your book groundbreaking and uh, a must read for people in religious history because they're not used to looking for information about some of these characters in uh, places like you have spent time in. So tell us a little bit about the sources that uh, began to open up for you in John Smith and Thomas Helwys. Well, the situation with regard to the two men is, is rather different in each case. Uh, John Smythe left behind a very large body of written work, uh, some of which was printed and published during his lifetime, and all of which pretty much was collected in the early 20th century and published in a very big edition by a Baptist scholar called Whitley in the United Kingdom. Uh, and in addition to that, there are a range of sources in relation to John Smythe, which have been known to scholars for a good number of years. Um, Local records, for example, from the city of Lincoln, uh, where he was town preacher, um, some material from the Cambridge University archives, because he was a fellow of, of Christ College, Cambridge, quite a, quite a large range. Thomas Helwes is much more difficult. Helwes has always been a more shadowy figure. Now, he did publish material. Uh, he did write books, um, particularly after his departure for, uh, entirely after his departure from England to Amsterdam in, in about 1608. But his origins, uh, his path towards separatism, shall we say, has always tended to be rather obscure, not least because his family is rather obscure. So it's more difficult with Thomas Helwes to, to assemble material, and yet there is material to be found. In, in odd places, uh, in, particularly in, in some uh, 
legal records that survive from Nottinghamshire, where he came from, uh, from the state papers uh, in London, which are, if you like, the working papers of the, of the English government at the time, and from legal records that appear in, in court cases that he was involved in. Those are legal records from England at the time are a particularly rich and often unexamined source of material because it's a very litigious society and just about anyone who was anyone was involved in litigation. And so that's the kind of source material. But as I say, it's a lot more difficult with Helvis than it is with Smythe. And I think there's probably still a lot more to be discovered about Helvis than has been discovered to date. Uh, where might that be discovered? Where are we going to be looking as scholars? What uh, What is your thought of running along the lines, tracing Helwes further? Uh, in what kind of records? Well, there is one particular class of, of documentary archives from, from England in the period, which has, has remained pretty much in, impenetrable to scholars. Mm -hmm. And that is the records of what are called the Courts of Common Law, uh, the Court of King's Bench and the Court of Common Pleas. Now, this all sounds terribly technical, but the reality was, as I said, that England at the time, in the late 16th, early century, 17th centuries, was a particularly litigious society. Uh, it probably had uh, a higher ratio of lawyers to, mem to, to members of the population and litigation to members of the population than any time before or since. Why that is so is, is a matter of debate, but it's still true. Uh, and what that means is that the records of those courts of common law are full of... of unexamined cases which have never been catalogued, mm. um, certainly never been anywhere near digitization uh, and which remain to be explored. And in particular in the case of the separatists, probably there is more to be found because they were people who were engaged in, a, in an illegal activity. Uh, they were subject to prosecution from various um, courts and from various quarters. And as I say, probably more will be found in those records when they're fully examined. But if you've never seen them, uh, where they are kept to the National Archives at Kew in South London, you would know why they are so imperative, because they are enormous. Your book has received a lot of attention on this side of the Atlantic. Um, in general, how has your work been received, making haste? Well, I think in, in the UK it was received ex extremely well. I think in the, in the United States, I think uh, it was generally well received. Um, but I think the way I approach the subject is a little bit unfamiliar from an American point of view. Um, there are certain aspects of the story which, from a British point of view, leap out at any, anybody who, who examines it as being particularly significant. The British, for example, are particularly interested in maritime history. Uh, just about everybody in Britain uh, has some relative or friend who's been involved in, in seafaring of some description, and it's taken for granted by the British that um, the maritime dimension of history is enormously important. And so I devoted quite a lot of attention to that, to the nature of the ships that are involved and the, uh, the logistics of, of discovery. That's something I think Americans find more difficult to, uh, to, to cope with. And in addition to that, I think it's hard for Americans to comprehend exactly what kind of agrarian society we're talking about. England in the 16th, early 17th century was still an overwhelmingly agrarian society uh, with relatively little by way of central bureaucracy, uh, with a, a fair amount of lo local autonomy um, and subject to all the kinds of problems that agrarian societies tend to have. And, and the nature of the English parish, the English village, was, was crucial to the way in which people behave. Now, I think Americans find that quite hard to relate to because it's so very different from anything that they, that they are aware of or come into contact with in their daily lives. I uh, recognize that the folk in Maine were quite interested in the way you began your book. Uh, talking about uh, beaver pelts in uh, 
upcountry Maine, and uh, they found uh, a clue there in something that you've done. Well, that's right. I mean, the beaver fur trade was one of the crucial aspects of the book. Um, the beaver fur trade it was absolutely essential to the to the creation and then the sustenance of the Plymouth colony and indeed the Massachusetts Bay colony for about the first 20-30 years of their existence. From about the 1640s onwards they developed other kinds of activities. They became much more secure in terms of their agricultural base and they developed other kinds of, of, of industries that could take over to some extent from the beaver fur trade. But in terms of the actual, the original bridgehead and the, the, the first creation of the Plymouth colony in the 1620s, it was absolutely central. And, and so I decided to investigate it in some detail. Very good. Uh, short time now. We will look forward to your lectures tonight and tomorrow night at the university. But what's uh, your current project? Well, currently I'm working on a book which deals with the, the origins of the American Revolutionary War uh, from a British perspective. Uh, in other words, it's another book that's transatlantic in its scope, but, but seen from the British side of the water, so to speak. You expect another edition to come out or just further printings of Making Haste from Babylon? Well, I hope further printings. I shouldn't imagine there'll be a new edition. Uh, I haven't seen any reason to make any amendments, but I would hope it'll be reprinted as, the, uh, Very good. as it sells out. Very good. Well, thank you, Nick. We welcome you here and look forward to your uh, presentations tonight and tomorrow night and uh, more about Thomas Elwes and John Smythe. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks very much.